I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson. Thank you for tuning in today. I know you have a lot of choices. I know your time is really, really precious, especially over the holidays. Um, So I just want to thank you for trying out a new show, for sticking with us as we work out some of the kinks, um, because I think we've got the start of something hopefully really exciting here this first season. So I have got a really great guest to share with you today. She is a brilliant writer, I discovered this past year, although you may know her since her work has been everywhere lately. She just had a great piece come out in the New York Times. Her name is Sarah Minkadick, and she had a memoir. She's the author of a memoir that was published this year that just really resonated with me. It was just one of those books that you read, and it's just stayed with me for all these months. It's called Homing Instincts. And... The gist of it is that when she became pregnant for the first time, Sarah decided to essentially ditch the modern world and move into this tiny 19th century cabin on her father's farm. And you're going to hear more about that in a moment because it's really incredible. So just to give you some background about our interview, I got in touch with Sarah even before I read the book. Um, After I came across this amazing op-ed that she wrote for the LA Times, you're also going to hear about that shortly. But we started going back and forth via email, and I realized we just had so much in common, not only as, you know, work from home, women writers who are trying to churn out hopefully meaningful work while taking care of small children, but that we really see the world in the same way and in the way that we are exploring here on the show, which is the struggle of how to exist in the 21st century world. Um, amidst all the digital chaos and everything else that's going on, how to how to exist in a simpler, more meaningful way. Uh, Sarah and I also both love cabins and beer, so that was really great that we have that in common. Um, and you know, one of the areas she writes about so beautifully in Homing Instincts, and this idea that's really haunted me ever since I read the chapter in her book um, about motherland, about homeland, and really it's about the lack of homeland that we have in the modern day world, how so many of us have been displaced from our cultures, from our family history, or had our native cultures destroyed. And this is something, you know, I actually never really thought about before I had kids. I was just kind of content to explore different cultures, to discover the world. And then when I had kids, I realized, you know, wow, it's, it's really lonely living in a city and not having family around. Or I guess, you know, I have some family around, but not having them around in the traditional sense, right? Where it's this like shared village of caretakers and raising babies is a shared experience. And, you know, wow, it's bizarre that I have virtually no stories to tell my daughters about their ancestors, save for my one great grandmother who came to America over the turn of the last century during the Russian massacres of the Jews that were um, happening at that time. I literally have no knowledge of my family history that came before. So Sarah's husband is Mexican, and she has a really, really unique perspective on the loss of homeland in the modern day world. And just to give you some more perspective about our conversation, Sarah and I did this interview back in September. Uh, This was a couple weeks after the earthquake in Oaxaca, where her husband's family actually lives. And then Unbelievably, about five minutes after I hung up the phone with her, the devastating 7.1 earthquake happened in Mexico City. Um, I, of course, you know, I checked in with her immediately after. Thankfully, her family and friends in Mexico are okay, um, or as okay as they can be after that kind of natural disaster. But in light of all that's happened and, you know, all that's happened around the world this year with natural disasters and, and the genocide in Myanmar and everything else that's going on, I think knowing that really sort of lends a a deeper meaning to the conversation that Sarah and I had. So thank you in advance for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. Sarah Mankadik is the author of Homing Instincts, Early Motherhood on a Midwestern Farm, which was published by Pantheon this year. 
Her writing has been featured or is forthcoming in Harper's Pacific Standard, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Oxford American, the Paris Review Daily, Aeon, Guernica, and elsewhere. She was the recipient of a 2015-2016 Fulbright Fellowship and holds an MFA in nonfiction from the University of Pittsburgh. She is also the founder of Vela, an online magazine of nonfiction writing by women. Sarah, that's quite the bio. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I was just wondering, can we start out by reading the book jacket on homing instincts, just a little bit of it? Because Sure. Okay. So that's what really grabbed me. Um, okay. Sarah Mankadek spent her 20s trekking alone across South America, teaching English to recalcitrant teenagers on Reunion Island. Is it pronounced Reunion or Reunion? Um, in English, it's reunion. It's probably fine. Okay. You don't have to do like you don't have to like bust out the French. Yeah, <laughs> um, picking grapes in France and camping on the Mongolian grasslands. For her, meaning and purpose were to be found on the road in flight from the ordinary. Yet the biggest and most transformative adventure of her life might be the one she never anticipated. About to turn thirty-one, she moves into a tiny nineteenth-century cabin on her family's Ohio farm, and begins the journey into motherhood. I mean, did did you write that, Sarah? No, I can't really take credit for that. I might have like co-written it or edited it a bit, but um, but that that was edit all all my editors. Oh, it was okay because when yeah. I actually I I ended up having to write everything when my book came out. I did the book jacket. Really? Yeah, so I just assumed you wrote that because it sounds so much like you. Yeah, I mean now it's like I can't. That whole process is just a fog from beginning to end. What happened? But so I mean, some of it might have been some of the language in my proposal, and then you know we did go back and forth on sort of copy and whatnot. So um, so I may have had some role in it. But yeah, now I'm at the point where like I can't. You know, it's 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 such an intense experience to go through the whole publishing process, and now I can't even remember, which is similar to motherhood in terms of like everything is so acute when you're in it in the first year, you know, and, and every single like bowl of sweet potatoes feels really profound and important. And then you look <laughs> back and you're like, I don't remember any of that, you know, when other people have their kids and whatnot. I know so. it's it's amazing what happens, isn't it? It's like, yeah. yeah, you get so engrossed and it's and it's so real. And then I almost think like, well, the, the painful stuff and the tough stuff you forget because I think then you wouldn't go on to have more kids and keep moving right. forward. Um, but yeah, are you sick of talking about the book yet? Because I had a point where I was like, I don't even know what the book's about anymore. Do you still <laughs> feel like you really know what the <laughs> what Homing Instincts is about? Does it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, you know, it's, I mean, since it's about something so personal, it's still relevant. But it is interesting because by the time the book came out, I had like transitioned into such a different period of my motherhood, you know, I mean, Elena is a toddler, now she's a preschooler. So everybody's like talking about these really intense, you know, moments of infanthood, like breastfeeding for hours on end. And it's just, that's all done, you know, so that's a little bit strange, but it is also really, really nice to revisit that period. And I, those are still sort of like the codes that I want to live by now. So I guess the book is a constant reminder of that. Yeah, and that's really what I want to talk about today because like you, I'm past that point of motherhood too. You know, my kids are seven and four and I'm not in the, well, I'm still nursing my little one, but I'm not in the acute breastfeeding stages. Right, like right. like in your chapter in the, in the milk cave where you're just literally, you don't know one minute to the next and your whole life is just this haze of milk. Right. And our life is so hectic and and so disconnected and, and you had this precious time when you were so involved in it. And yet, even me reading it now, um, being so far past that point, your book, I want to describe it almost reading that your book this summer was was like a respite. And it was just this reminder of how I just want a life that's more like this. You know, and we were kind of joking in the lead up to this, trying to schedule this interview because we're both like working and writing moms and like we were dealing with illness and we had to reschedule this interview like three times. I was joking that I the title of this podcast is going to be, I want to live in an 18th century cabin like Sarah Mankadek. Um, so how are you dealing with it now? I mean, can you talk about your life now where you're living and and are you bringing some of that, just what you experienced and homing instincts into your life? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's something I actually sort of struggle with on a daily basis. I mean, struggle is probably an exaggeration, but it's, it's you know, an active part of my thinking every day in terms of like, how can I 
sort of back off this like constant, you know, pressure to be productive and pressure to like document my time and, and, um, and sort of like re-enter that space of just being in the world in a sort of simpler way or, or just sort of being present without all this pressure to sort of like make progress and be successful and do things. And I think in my book, I framed it a little bit in terms of like, I'd spent so much time sort of like applying for things and looking at the the next, you know, the next fellowship or the next, um, you know, grad school or whatever, whatever was coming up next. And then I just sort of, like you said, took a respite from all of that in, in, during that period of pregnancy and early motherhood. And, you know, that was really, really hard at the beginning. And it was sort of forced upon me by circumstances because, you know, um, I mean, we were perhaps a little naive <laughs> in terms of like, we were like, well, maybe we'll get pregnant or maybe we won't get pregnant. And I, I hadn't, you know, it wasn't like I, I didn't think that pregnancy would be a huge life change, but I think I just dramatically underestimated how intense it would be for me, especially in the first several months. So we ended up just sort of, you know, we had moved into this cabin as just a transitional thing after the MFA and we ended up staying. And so coming to that conclusion of like, I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now. And I don't know what my life is going to be like. I have no idea how it's going to change. So I'm just going to be here and be content with that and read and write. And, you know, I spent very little time on the internet and, and that was sort of magical. And, you know, in, in so much, in so many ways, the book is like, pitted as sort of the anti-travel book and like you know I had spent all this time traveling and the book is very much about learning to to come to peace with the interior journey and yet at the same time when I look back on it now I think well that was also sort of an intense travel experience I mean very much rooted in a particular place and time of just being in this sort of isolated part of rural Ohio and and not going anywhere and just and so, you know, I feel like now that that obviously we we eventually had to come out of that situation to meet our baby grew up, like we probably weren't going to live, you know, in a tiny cabin on my parents' farm for like the next 15 years, sadly. Um, so, you know, now we live, we live in Pittsburgh and we live, you know, like in a, in a nice little neighborhood in the middle of the city. And, you know, she goes to preschool and I am working, you know, full time more or less. And, uh, and so, you know, I really miss the simplicity of that situation of just having the circumstance sort of dictate, this is where you're going to be and this is all you're going to do. Um, because now I'm, I'm back in that mode of, okay, now I got to apply for this thing and I've got to, you know, be in this spot next year and I got to get this done and that done. And I have all these sort of metrics all the time in my life. Um, but, and, and it's a lot harder as I'm sure every woman who works and has children knows to like. To, to balance that in some ways, you know, and I think I idealized that time now. I mean, it was also really challenging in a lot of ways to just sort of be in this isolated spot with an infant, but that was all I did. And I knew that was all I was going to do. And I, and I didn't have the desire to do anything else. And now, you know, there are all these sort of balls in the air there. I have my child, but I also have my career again. I have all these other things. So, um, so, you know, I think I'm constantly seeking for a way to, regain or to, to maintain that perspective in a life that's gotten a lot more complicated, inevitably, probably. Um, and that's just full of a lot of like competing interests and that isn't as clear cut in its priorities, you know. Um, and that that's part of just the experience of being a mother, I think, is that you you get your, your stuff figured out for like, you know, a month maybe or maybe a year if you're lucky and, and you think you have it all figured out and then the whole paradigm changes, you know. Um, which is, you know, probably is what the Buddhists would say is like life overall. That's just how it goes. So you have to just learn how to be comfortable with that. So I think in some ways the the experience is like an incredibly long-winded answer. Sorry. The no, I'm loving of, it. <laughs> um, the experience of writing the book, of, of being in that moment and then feeling so compelled to write the book about it has sort of like engraved those things in my mind. So I sometimes I are more or less attuned to those questions or attuned to that way of thinking. But the, the book and that experience have sort of planted that in my mind as the way I would like to live or the central questions I would like to live by and, and how much I actually do that or not very greatly on a day-to-day basis. But Yeah, so did you, did you consider a kind of some way like a midway point? Still living maybe out in the country somewhere or... or still having that kind of simpler existence or I mean what specifically brought you to Pittsburgh 
Or, or do you uh, feel like you have a, I mean, I guess I'm asking this because I, I live in urban Los Angeles, like hyper urban Los Angeles. Yeah. And I, I know that where I am now is not the place I want to be. So yeah. do you feel like where you are now is the place you want to be? Do you feel like you need to find someplace that's more a balance? I know you said, obviously, you couldn't live in that, that farmhouse forever, but was this the right place to go? You know, that's a great question because I think part of the, you know, work I've been doing in terms of like coming to peace with my life and and where I'm at is like trying to just let go of that question entirely because I think that's been sort of the driving question of my life and that's, you know, I think there's a lot of privilege in even being able to ask that question, but I mean definitely like my 20s were very much about do I want to be here? Where do I want to be next? You know, okay, I'm going to be in this place. And then this, I've sort of like, ah, I've sort of tired out this place. I'm going to move on to this place and, you know, jumping all around countries and continents and whatnot. And then I think part of the experience of pregnancy for me was like, okay, I need to move into sort of a deeper way of seeing or thinking that goes beyond just like, how do I feel about being here right now? And is there a better place that I could be? Because I've sort of spent my whole life seeking the better place. You know, and part yeah. of the circumstances of being a mother are just accepting like financial limitations, accepting that like there are now all these sort of different factors in play that that maybe weren't in play in the same way before. So, I mean, we moved to Pittsburgh, honestly, because my husband had started his business here and it was sort of the safest place to go where I could write full time. And, and he's a photographer, reality. right? Yeah, he's a photographer. So he, um, you know, he photographs weddings here, which is not necessarily like his ideal dream job, but he also has time to do his art. And, you know, and then that gives me time and space to do my art without as much financial pressure as we'd have in another US city. So that was sort of very pragmatic. And, you know, part of the, the, beauty and also the difficulty of being here has been like Pittsburgh is a great city in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a really great city for kids. There are these beautiful parks. We live right in between two huge parks and we spend like a ton of time walking the trails there and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I mean, would I love to be like in San Francisco or, or somewhere out West in like a little mountain town in Montana where you just like walk out the door and climb a mountain in the afternoon? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I can name like 15 places where I would love to be. But, um, you know, and not to sound, I feel like this is such like a depressing adult thing to say. And I don't mean it that way. Like just, you got to come to grips with like living in your crappy Midwestern city. And like, that's not what I mean. And I love Pittsburgh, but you like that, that game is never ending. You could just play it forever of like, where, what would I ideally like to be doing and where would I like to be? And to some extent there, there are people in, who, who really like, okay, they do want to change their lives and they do want to do something different. But I feel like for me, the danger for me as a person is that I'll just do that forever. I'll never be happy with where I'm at. There will always be some other place that has some other mix of elements that's better. Yeah. You know? And I, and I'm kind of that person too. And I, part of me wonders, and this was something I really thought about when I was reading your book, when you're talking about this idea of, of homing instinct, of a homing instinct and finding and returning to the place where you're from and You've got this essay called, it's called Motherland, right? Yeah. Yeah, where you're talking about that. I, well, I don't know how you see it, but for me, it was about this idea that so many of us don't have a home. And because we live in this post-industrial age where we no longer live in our ancestral homelands. And so we don't, I don't have a people. And so as part of me wonders, am I forever searching because I don't have that place? And I just remember like your husband in the book, your husband's Mexican, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it's something that's kind of haunted me, which is like something along, and you'll correct me, but it's like, I have, he said, I have a people, you know, like you don't have a people. Yeah, yeah. And, and so do you think, I don't know, this is kind of a loaded question, but do you think that the searching, your, the constant searching is linked to that? Or do you feel like you, you have, you did find your home by writing this book and you do feel those Midwestern roots? Like, how do you feel about that whole concept of not, of that, feeling untethered, which is how I feel a lot of the time, especially as a young mother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like for Jorge, you know, he's so deeply connected to Oaxaca where he's from. He grew up in a tiny village there and then he lived in the city afterwards. And, um, you know, his, I mean, to, not to sound cheesy, but his heart is really there in the sense that like, you know, the beautiful things about Oaxaca are his and he owns them and he feels deeply moved by them. And he also feels deeply hurt by everything that is flawed and, and messed up and problematic about Oaxaca. And, you know, 
I, I think my relationship with, with my quote unquote homeland, if anybody says that of Ohio, you know, is, is, has changed dramatically since I became a mother. But I also think I just, there will never be that intensity of relationship that he has with Oaxaca. And, um, and so I do think that's one major difference between us and something that, that, you know, can be a point of contention because, you know, we've lived in both Oaxaca and we've lived in the U.S. And when we live here, you know, I don't, I feel like I don't take it as personally when I'm like, yep, that's the U.S. It sucks or whatever, you know, about whatever <laughs> the food is terrible or the politics are terrible. You know, whereas in, in Mexico, if I say that, he, he does, he takes it much more personally because it's really a part of who he is. Um, so, you know. Um, and by the way, I should just jump in and say this, we're talking right now, which is a week after the earthquake in Oaxaca. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, you know, and that's something that, um, you know, we've been following really closely and he's been following really closely and keeping informed about. Um, so, you know, and I think Oaxaca is a place where, you know, there still are a lot of those ties. So, you know, family ties and, and a lot of those traditions and whatnot. And that is, you know, being very close to that as I am through him, that is on the one hand, a really powerful, amazing resource. On the other hand, you know, as people who have come, you know, some people who've come from those places and from those sort of more traditional cultures, it can be a really limited thing. You know, there are, there, there are sort of a limited way of things that you, ways that you can be a mother, for example, you know, and there, and, and there, you know, in some ways that's really comforting and in some ways that can also be really stressful. But to go back to Ohio, like I do think that one, you know, I had always sort of had this perspective that like, I'm not from anywhere. I don't feel a connection to anywhere. I've sort of lived in all these different places. And, you know, finally when I was pregnant and I was also living in Ohio in a little cabin, but, you know, I really did feel like for better or worse, this is where I'm from and it's deeply shaped me. And, you know, my relationship with it is not nearly as, um, you know, intense or straightforward as Jorge's is with Oaxaca. Maybe that's unfair to call it straightforward, but but it is a real part of me and it's a real part of my aesthetic and, you know, and and the way I see the world. So I do think I sort of came around to that, ironically, you know, by being in Oaxaca and being with Jorge and seeing that, you know. Right. And it's interesting that you're, you know, you have that for your daughter now. So you have both sides of it, which I think yeah. is so wonderful. Are you, have you, have you thought about how you're going to raise her? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean that, that's a silly question. Of course you have. But like, well, actually, I don't know if it's a silly question because I started out thinking I was going to do one thing and I've completely gone in the other direction as I've been on this journey. So yeah, I mean, are you going to raise her in a conventional way or is she going to have real ties to Mexico? Like, have you have you thought about a specific way you want to raise her in this world? Having two parents, one who has this clear background and and one who you know has come from a more searching sort of place right yeah i mean that's really hard i feel like it's it's a definite priority for us a for her to, to speak spanish and have a really solid grasp of spanish and b for her to maintain like a really strong connection with oaxaca and obviously that gets tricky when you're a writer and a photographer and you're based here and like you know now she's in school so before we, we did spend the whole last year in oaxaca when i was on the fulbright and then, you know, we've gone down a couple of times since then, but it has gotten definitely more complicated to sort of carve out real blocks of time to take her there and keep her connected to that culture. But we want that to be, you know, in the foreground of who she is. Um, and, you know, and, and again, like it's also been a lot trickier here with the Spanish. Obviously, Pittsburgh does not have like, you know, a massive Latino community in L.A. I can imagine it'd be really different. Oh, yeah. Come um, here. <laughs> so, I know. I know. We've thought about that, actually. But, you know, so we really, you know, are trying to just speak nothing but Spanish at home. But I think the funny thing is that, like, you know, like everything with kids, you don't know what they're going to take exactly. And we've sort of decided that when she's like 16, she's going to rebel against whatever, what, whichever one of us she hates more. And she's going to go to like the opposite culture and, <laughs> and live there. So we'll see. And, you know, probably that'll be Mexico at this point. Um, but we want to give her sort of those options. And I think that's a really, I think it can be a really difficult thing to be positioned in between those two worlds and to have to sort of like find your space of belonging in, in two different cultures where you don't quite entirely fit. At the same time, I think it's a really powerful thing to like have this homeland that you can go to and discover and feel connected to and have very clear roots there. I mean, I hope that she sees that 
as a as more of a gift than a burden down the line. Yeah. I'm sure she will. You you seem like a very mindful parent. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. Then you wonder, you know, I, it's like I think we're all overly mindful, and then it's like, ah, at the end of the day, you know, she's going to end up like, uh, you know, who knows where, <laughs> moving down to some tiny village in Chiapas and defying us all or something. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, can we talk about the op-ed that you wrote for the LA Times because I think there's a real sure. tie-in here about motherhood and how we don't how we don't value it in the modern world um can can we talk about that for a second yeah okay yeah and i I just want to start out by reading a little bit of this sure which gets to the the main point and by the way i'm going to put a link to this on the page for the podcast because it is just i i think i've read it about 20 times now sarah (laughs) (laughs) it speaks to so much about what's not only why we don't value motherhood, but also just why we're all so struggling in the modern world, you know, Mm -hmm. because we don't really value motherhood. So let me just read this. Um, Patriarchal patriarchal culture has reduced motherhood to an exercise no serious artist would tackle as a subject. The result is not only the marginalization of motherhood as a literary topic, but the real-life marginalization of mothers, obscuring the difficulties of child child care, the intensity of birth, the complexities of working and writing as a mother, and the profound ways having a baby changes a woman's life, body, and mind." Um, and then you go on to say that you once listened to a podcast with Taffy Brodesser Ackner, a writer I admire who wrote a powerful, popular story about her birth experience. She told the interviewer, I don't want to be the person who writes about birth. If you're the sad birth lady with your pastel colored book cover, by the way, that's me. I'm just interjecting <laughs> there. <laughs> and, and you're going around and you're speaking about it. No one ever says, like, you should write a shouts and murmurs. Birth is only, after all, the single most important experience in our lives. Like war, sports, medicine, epic travel, it's a matter of blood and sweat and gore and suffering of life and death, of triumphing triumphing over the limits of body and mind, except only women can give birth. So birth is imagined as an ingenuous, icky realm for the dull-minded. What? Why did you decide to write that? Um, you know, I decided to write that just because I found myself um, having to sort of justify constantly my book as quote unquote, literary or serious, you know, like I felt like there was this immediate reaction on the part of people when I said, oh, yeah, it's about motherhood. It's like, oh, like they automatically that this image of like, you know, a baby in a diaper with a rattle beside it, like popped up in the head. And they were just envisioning like, how to, you know, puree peas and start solids at seven months or something. And that's not necessarily like their fault. But it is, it is this sort of instinct to see motherhood as something you know, trivial or practical or, you know, not not necessarily like a meaty subject for creative work. And um, so I just started to think about why I felt the urge to do that. And then the way that, you know, we tend to think about motherhood and how, you know, also in my own life, I'd sort of always had this assumption that I would be a mother in spite of or, you know, in while also doing, you know, whatever X thing would be the defining thing in my life, you know, um, because just to be defined as a mother, to have that be a principal identity was was degrading to women. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's an incredibly difficult subject because on the one hand, you know, it is really problematic to foreground motherhood as the central part of every woman's identity. And many women don't want to have children or don't want that to be the way that they're defined. And I don't even know if I want to be defined that way. At the same time, this sort of like, mission to to you know separate motherhood from femininity or motherhood from being a woman i think has had the effect of of you know a making motherhood like they just this thing that we fit into our lives or we fit into our careers you know and and then also just sort of like this uh, sentimental realm of pop culture that we don't really want to be tainted by and I think that's so unfortunate because obviously, as, as you know, pretty much any mother knows, and especially artist mothers, like it's this incredibly difficult, profound, you know, life-changing experience that, in you know, affects your perspective in all sorts of ways. And uh, so, you know, so it's a really tricky space to navigate because like, like you read that quote about birth being the most profound experiences. Of, of one of the most profound experiences of our lives. And, you know, I got an email, I got a bunch of emails afterwards, but one stood out from this woman who said, 
you know, it's just sort of haranguing me saying, you're taking us back to the stone age. And, you know, why does birth have to define our lives? And like women are not just birth machines. And I was sort of like, you know, I guess in, in retrospect, it's not surprising, but, um, you know, it was, it was really stunning to me that like, we've been so programmed to sort of marginalize this experience um, both sort of from, you know, a more traditional like feminist perspective and also just from a patriarchal perspective as, as, you know, as not important or not defining women's lives or, or sentimental or whatever. And so this woman, like it just bypassed her entirely that everyone is born, you know, everyone is born. That's a fundamental experience of our lives that does in fact impact a lot of our lives. So it's not just about women being mothers or not. It's about birth being a pretty important experience for everybody. And, um, and just the fact that that's a radical point is, is kind of crazy and fascinating. It, it uh, is. And, and I would, that's actually what I was going to ask you about because I was looking through some of the comments and I was going to ask you if those were just the real vocal people who kind of pop up on a lot of the articles that so many of us have written about motherhood and breastfeeding and things that go with it or if that was the overall feedback because... You know, I, I feel like there is this divide, and this is something that you've written about in some of your other writings, that there are two ways of thinking about motherhood. Some who I would say, like you, after reading your book and like me, who have seen it as this real transformative experience and this connection to, you know, human history and things that we haven't thought about in the modern world. And then there's still a very large contingent of people who see it as, you know, who still view it as a prison. I think was how you described it. So yeah. what's what's the feedback been like all over? And do you see that divide as clearly as I do? I mean, yeah, I do. I think that unfortunately it's such contentious territory because I think those two things are positioned, you know, oppositionally, like it's, it's one thing or the other thing. And if you're, if you're, you know, view it as a prisoner, if you view it as sort of this like profound role that you, you inhabit or whatnot, then, then those things are opposed and they're going to be inherently at odds with each other. And I think that's really unfortunate because I think that, you know, one of the things that literature has done, a lot of the, the literature around motherhood has shown, yeah, it can be incredibly boring. It can be incredibly oppressive and horrible. And some women experience it like that and that's normal and that's okay. And I think that's, it's really important to have that perspective. But I think sometimes like we make the mistake as a culture in general of assuming that what's negative or hostile is more real and more valuable. And that, you know, the, the literature that celebrates motherhood is inherently going to be sort of more sentimental or is going to be making the assumption that all women should be mothers or that motherhood should be this incredibly powerful experience. And, and I don't think it has to be that way. I think there's space for, for so many narratives about motherhood. So I, I just think, you know, there's also a reactionary response to those narratives that say motherhood is, is a prison and is horrible and those women get attacked in all sorts of vicious ways. And then, you know, to, to a much lesser degree, I feel like, you know, writing that, that LA Times op-ed, there was that, that contingent of people who stepped up and said, well, this is, you know, horribly oppressive to women and, and, you know, this isn't important. And I think it's so sad to say, why can't we say birth is important? Why can't birth be important? It doesn't mean that you have to think birth is the central experience of your life, but why you know, why are people so threatened by elevating that? And I think it's so historically charged, it's so culturally charged, but to say that motherhood is is an important creative subject doesn't necessarily mean that you as a mother or a writer have to feel like it's your central identity or even have to feel like you want to write about it. I have, you know, I have two really close friends who just became mothers and one is not even remotely interested or who just became two Philly close writer friends who just became mothers and one is not at all interested in writing about it. And the other is writing a lot about it. So, you know, I think just it's empowering to be able to say this is important and it, you know, it should be seen as an important literary subject without the, they're having to follow the conclusion that every woman who is a mother, you know, needs to see it as the central part of her identity or every artist needs to deal with motherhood. If she's a mother, I, I don't think, you know, but I think a lot of people just sort of, make that leap or feel threatened by that, you know, sort of assertion that motherhood is important, you know, which I don't, which I don't think has to be the case at all. I think there's space for all these different narratives. Um, so there's no need to sort of shout down that one of, of motherhood perhaps being really, really profound. Yeah. And, I think you said that you explained that beautifully. And I, I think part of the catch 22 
also is that because we don't value motherhood as a society and we don't see these as some of the most important experiences of being human, of our human existence, that we're in this space now where moms just are, have to do everything and are taken for granted. And we the reason why we all are torn in a zillion directions and some of us feel overwhelmed and frustrated, well, all of us do to some extent, by the demands of modern motherhood is because we don't value motherhood. And it's so, I don't know, I just would love to get your thoughts on that. It's just- Yeah, yeah, it's such a, it's such a like maddening paradox because on the one hand, I think a lot of the people who would like have negative comments on, on my story like that would think we overvalue motherhood. Like, oh, why, why are, you know, why should we celebrate mothers or we, we are just all the time saying sentimental things about mothers. And, and that's sort of true in this really superficial sentimental way mothers are idealized and whatnot. But it, it has actually very little to do with the reality of being a mother and with the reality of being valued as a mother. And I think so much of motherhood in this country is just such an isolated individual experience with like tremendous pressure being put on mothers and like tremendous power attributed to them in terms of their impact on their kids. And yet at the same time, no real political power, like no real power in terms of like, um, you know, having the ability to negotiate maternity leave or childcare or whatnot. Um, so, so like that paradox is really oppressive and horrible. Like, you know, we, we sort of value motherhood as this like, oh, it should be this really powerful individual experience private experience where you are sort of educated about every toxin that could affect your kid and everything you should do for them to prepare for preschool. But like you actually have no real societal resources, you know? Right. And, and that, and, and by the way, sorry to interrupt you, that brings us, so this was the connection I was driving at when we came from the previous conversation about not having people and not having a people in ancestral homelands is that it's ironic that this is happening in the U.S. where we have no cohesive culture and the right. people who surrounded us in in earlier times that we've lost this perspective as what it means to raise children because it's not an individualized experience, is it? Right. And I think a lot of the decisions that we make, like in a similar way, a lot of the decisions that we make about food come out of that like cultural vacuum of just, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be eating or doing or whatever. So I am just going to like buy whatever the latest thing is and, and follow the latest trends and, you know, sort of, hue to that because there's there's no you know solid structure in place and so I think you just see and especially when so much weight is just put on the individual shoulder it's like you know you're you're just constantly I see I hear all these moms saying oh well I had to do my research you know and it's like there's something crazy about having to do like an hour's worth of research to find you know a bicycle helmet or like you know, I don't know, there are a million examples, you know, a pediatrician or whatnot, like something has gotten sort of out of control in our culture, you know, when it is just sort of this wild free for all of everybody trying to figure out for themselves, you know, and often in this very isolated way, you know. Yeah, it's in it's interesting that you say that about food. I think about that all the time, <laughs> especially yeah. as as people are becoming more aware about um, where our food comes from and in the industrialization of our food system and organic food. It's great to see people moving toward organic and local, but this kind of weird thing is happening. I don't know if you feel this way, but it's, I call it like the Instagramming of America of like all restaurants and like, like everything kind of looks the same. It has this yeah. same kind of like sort of healthy research, like idealized sheen to it without any real cultural identity, you know? Mm -hmm. I, we're all just sort kind of like grasping at whatever. Whereas, I, I don't know, like if your husband's family <coughs> a century Sorry. or two ago, oh no, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, speaking of balancing it all, we're both like fighting off <laughs> I'm going to be editing out, editing out some phlegm from this conversation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, there, wa there was only one way to do it. Like you said before, you... There was only way to everyone slept with their children in their beds because they didn't have a house with four rooms, you know, to stick their kids in another bedroom. And everyone did breastfeed because formula wasn't an option. It didn't exist. And you ate certain things for dinner because that was what was locally available to you. And so I don't I don't know where I'm going with this. But um, yeah, it's a struggle. I mean, do you have family around you now in Pittsburgh? How yeah, have you, have you built a community? Like, I'd be interested to hear, like, how have you tried to 
sort of maintain that connection and find other mothers around you who might be like-minded. I can imagine it's it's not always easy after, especially you've written about this very intense experience from a very intense perspective that not everyone has. So what's it been like finding your your tribe in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I mean, I am I am really bad at that. I figured out just because, I mean, we moved here last year and, and another major draw in being here is that my family is, um, you know, all within driving distance. So my, my parents are two hours away at the farm and then my sister is in Columbus and I'm really close with all of them. So that's amazing. I mean, we spent a ton of time over the past year driving out there and staying out there for stretches out at the farm or going to visit my sister. And, you know, now they've begun to watch um, Elena for, for like days at a stretch while we go do things, which is amazing. So that's been huge. And that's, you know, and, and being able to have her have a really strong connection with them and, and just to have that support is amazing. But I have not been good at all about sort of building a tribe of mothers here in Pittsburgh, I guess, just because it's so easy to just sort of get into this routine of like, okay, I've got to carve out my precious work time. And like before she started school, we had a nanny for four hours a day. So during those four hours, just be like frantic writing time. And then, you know, and then Jorge would keep working and I would take Elena. And so I would just be like on childcare duty for the rest of the day. And then by the time it's like, you know, seven or eight, you're just done. You know, it's like a beer and some Cheez-Its. <laughs> like, I'm done. <laughs> there and goes then, your Midwest influence. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I betray myself with the Cheez-Its. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I just, it's so easy to get into that mode, you know, and I've been really, and especially now with her in school, it's it's even crazier. Like she's in school from eight to three and that, that those hours are just like insane, get your head down and work time. And then she comes home and now because of like the school guilt and whatnot, it's like super mom time from like three to seven. And then by the time it's over, I'm done, you know? So I haven't really budgeted any time for friends, which would be a good thing. I still talk often to my my close friends who are in different states. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose with school that will come to like finding more of a community here and whatnot. But um but that's something I really miss about Oaxaca because, I mean, we did have a lot of friends there. From, we lived there for years before we moved back to the U.S. And a lot of those friends have kids now. And it just felt more natural there somehow um, getting people together. And, like, you know, you could take your kids to the cantina and they, like, sit there on the floor and hang out while you're, you know, what having a beer and talking. And it feels a lot harder to do that here. Like, there are more spaces for kids here. At the same time, there are fewer spaces for adults and kids to hang out together. Yeah, Mexico, um, Mexico is a really family-friendly culture. I've noticed that. They just are happy with kids staying up late and kids being part of everything. And it's tough. A lot of people, it's like, okay, I've scheduled my date night and the kids go away and we go off and do this. And I just, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't want that escape time for my kids. I love that whole like hanging out with the kids and doing fun stuff with them. I don't see it as like a separation that I want. And I, I agree with you. Like, I wish there was more of that. Do you feel that way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that. Like, I think that's sort of the ideal when like we can coexist as a family and she can be doing her thing and we can be doing our thing. And it's like, you know, fun and stimulating for everyone. Now that probably happens like once in a million years, honestly. But, you know, there was more of that in Mexico where there would just, there'd be a concert or there'd be an art opening or, you know, and, you know, you could, and it wasn't like here where it's like adult spaces are very adult and like, you should get a babysitter or do that. And and that's not to say in Mexico, it's like, because I think people have the perception that then kids will just overrun it. It'll just become like this kid thing, you know, with peanut butter sandwiches everywhere or whatever. And it's not like that in Mexico. It's like, there are people, you know, adults hanging out drinking and talking, and then there's some, there are kids there and they may be doing whatever, but it, you know, there's not that sort of divide. And I think that makes things a little bit trickier here um, in terms of getting like family time and also just getting like families together without a whole lot of planning and whatnot. Right. And you don't have the hovering parents too. It's not like, you know, like someone holding a squeezer up to their kid's mouth. Like they, everyone's enjoying <laughs> themselves. The parents are drinking wine and the kids are playing. And, you know, we we actually, LA, you we're starting to get more of that, which is really nice. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get some of that in the summer here, like, you know, then, then we experience the joy that is winter and like get it getting dark at 4.30 PM. But in the summer, there are like outdoor concerts and things that are actually really fun. And, you know, you can go and, and bring a picnic and whatnot. And your kid can like run around and there's good music. So 
that's fun. Yeah, that is one of the nice things about being in the city. I gotta say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we realized that like there there is a major trade off to living in such an isolated rural area. Like, I don't know what we would have done for school, you know, for preschool. And uh, you know, here, like, there's an amazing children's museum. There, you know, all sorts of like playgrounds and things. So, do you guys have the forest kindergarten? thing has that come to pittsburgh yet no has that come to la no astonishingly i've been desperately trying to find one except we're almost past that point now amazingly no people think of la as this very health conscious outdoorsy place but it's kind of like that's more of like a pacific northwest thing i'm astonished it hasn't happened here um we do some outdoor uh foraging classes which i've just discovered but there's not like a day-to-day immersed in nature it's it's it is very much like a car centric culture unfortunately but there isn't an environmental charter school that looks really interesting that starts in kindergarten um, in in pittsburgh mm -hmm, that's based in um like affiliated with the pittsburgh parks conservancy somehow and uh so i need to look into that because there's like a massive waiting list but well if you find out more about it please come back and tell us because i'm i'm really interested we've been trying to get someone on the show who's experienced that and so far haven't gotten anyone so definitely definitely come back and tell us yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. but in our time left, I just I'd love to hear you talk about uh, your magazine. We haven't had a chance to talk about that. Anything else that you're working on? What's next for you? Yeah, I mean, so I'm actually working on another another motherhood book, um, but this one uh, is about sort of the dark side of motherhood. So about um, anxiety, and then specifically about like you know, the scientific aspects of anxiety, the sort of like cultural history of it around motherhood and um, sort of making the argument that that we're actually experiencing like an epidemic of maternal anxiety in the U.S. that's really underdiagnosed and sort of ignored or normalized. Um, and so, you know, it's not, I don't want it to be seen as like a, a quote unquote mental illness book that's just about sort of extreme anxiety as a debilitating disease, which it can be, but just about like sort of the normalized culture of anxiety around motherhood in the U.S. in particular, and also about how we we sort of have this narrative of postpartum depression as like this strange, crazy thing that might happen to like a small percentage of the population. But actually, I want to, you know, look at how common other types of postpartum, you know, disorders are, including anxiety and OCD and whatnot, and how there are so many women who might not be diagnosed specifically with the, with the actual disorder, might not have a clinical manifestation, but might have sub-levels of it or whatnot. Um, so looking at that from all sorts of different angles, so how, how, you know, how does the neurobiology of the maternal brain change and what's the history of motherhood up until now and how has that gotten us to this particular point as a culture and, um, you know, what's sort of the psychology of maternal ambivalence. So coming at it from all, all different angles, it's a very new project for me, um, but exciting. Oh, it sounds fascinating. And and I'm glad you said the bit about the history because I see such a connection between so much of what we experience now and and our lack of culture and, and how separate we are. And so, wow, that, that's fascinating. I can't wait to hear more about that whenever, when do you think it's going to be done? Have you started the writing yet or are you just researching? Yeah, yeah you know, actually, no, I'm just in the research phase. And, um, and that's super fascinating. I mean, there's just so much, like you said, about that, just the cultural history of motherhood and how much we sort of take grant, take for granted is like, this is how we think about being a good mother, which is actually really um, relative, you know, historically. So yeah, so I'm just doing tons of research. I learned how to use Scrivener for the first time. That's probably embarrassing to admit. And now I have like this massive explosive Scrivener <laughs> file. So uh, just adding daily to that, and then we'll start the actual writing work here soon. Yeah, I know the research stage is like every day is plunging into another wormhole. <laughs> yeah, totally. But you know, I love that. It feels so luxurious in comparison to writing. It's like, oh, I'll just like read about 18th century attitudes about, you know, about motherhood. And that that feels like really indulgent in comparison to actually have to sitting down and write. I, I love it. That's why I'm doing the podcast, because I, I actually do love the research <laughs> phase the most and and talking to other people um yeah so yeah it, but you're such a you're such a like I said you're a writer's writer so I'm sure once you get in that space it's it's gonna be brilliant I can't wait to hear more about it so in, in the meantime uh where can people I know your time's precious and limited but where can people get in touch with you are you on social media give us that yeah. whole spiel I- 
I am. Yeah. So people can find me on Twitter, just Sarah Mankidik on Twitter. And I'm actually more um, active right now on Instagram. Um, so I'm Familia Santiago on Instagram. So you can find me there as well. Yeah. And you have a, you wrote a great piece, by the way, which I'll also put the link up on my webpage about you, about uh, your your view of social media and new motherhood, which I love. That was a wonder. Where, what, what publication was that for? Um, you know, I wrote one, I wrote an essay about that for Southwest magazine. Oh, which, that's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Got, got kind of a, like a surprising, like a lot of people wrote me emails about that. Nice emails, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and then I wrote another one about just about Instagram for Bella, um, back called motherhood through Instagram, which was about me starting an Instagram, which now is like, uh, I, you know, to become my predominant social media thing unexpectedly. So. Yeah, I love that piece too. We'll put the link up to that. And I, I that kind of resonated for me because I've actually been on social media hiatus since May. Yeah, oh, that's um, creamy. <laughs> that's what everyone says. Everyone, yeah. everyone's response is, oh, that sounds so nice. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It has been nice. Um, but when I think, I was thinking I would come back, but I don't know if I am in full force. And I think it might just be Instagram because I don't know. It's it's it surprised me too. There's a there's a nice community, and I I do love the visual aspect of it. Yeah, it feels more compatible. I feel like with with like a full time writing life, I really I had to back off of Twitter after the election and all the insanity. I was like, oh my, this is causing massive like stress spikes. So um, but Instagram feels like it just can be more natural, I guess, because most of my pictures are just like of my kid covered in mud, you know, so it's just my <laughs> daily life. Well, and you but, have a photographer husband too. I would say you have such beautiful images on that account. So everyone should definitely follow you. It's, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. Thanks. Yeah, I get spoiled with that. Thanks, Sarah. This has been so fun. I hope you'll come back. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. And if you did, I'm going to ask a quick favor of you today, if you haven't already please take two minutes to rate and write a quick review of the show. If you have the Apple podcast app, you can do that by putting the name of the podcast that's uncivilized in the search bar, click on the album art, and then scroll down to the bottom of the page in the area where you can rate and type in your review. A lot of podcasters don't reveal their stats, but I just want to share with you, uh, we're already up to almost a thousand subscribers just one month after our launch and with more ratings, more reviews, it will definitely help me bring you more fascinating, more high profile guests later this season. So I will thank you in advance. And I will also leave you with our theme music, which is by Paul Damien Hogan. And I will see you next Monday with another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast.